Well, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are only covering 15 to 29. This is the shortest chunk of Ecclesiastes that we're going to cover. So you can haul out to the lake for Memorial Day barbecue and beat the Methodists all the way out there. Uh, but what we're looking at today is chapter, five, or chapter 7, 15 through 29. And this might be one of the most perplexing passages of Scripture that we have before us. But upon closer examination, it exposes beautiful truth that all of us need. And it has some of the most historically misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible, specifically 16, 17, and 18. But if we will be wise to do the work, then we can excavate this dig a quarter inch at a time and go down and see what it is that God has placed for us here in this passage. Solomon, he's going to deal with a major factor that affects all of our lives under the sun. What is the state of human beings? What are we? He's going to deal with that massive idea. The theology, the theology of humanity, or what you can call biblical anthropology. So books that are called systematic theologies, where it just talks about how the Bible orders all these things. The good ones always give a major section to anthropology. What is man? What is woman? What are we? Solomon's going to deal with that in this section so in our study of the Bible, we certainly strive to know God. That is the end of man. The end goal of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. But in that quest, we must also discover who it is that we are. What is a human? We have to know that because otherwise we can't properly understand God if we don't know who we are. Understanding what man is in relation to God is a massive key in unlocking interaction with humanity under the sun. Who we are and how we interact with the world depends upon what we believe humans to be. And Solomon is going to take the position that humans are depraved and they're finite. And when we understand the finitude and the depravity of man, it makes us better spouses, it makes us better parents, it makes us better co-workers, employers, and employees, and it makes us better followers of Christ and better worshipers when we understand that truth. We are better worshipers of the impeccable and the infinite God when we know that we are grossly peccable and definitely finite. Let me just illustrate the understanding of what somebody is to kind of make it help. We had our family, when I was a kid, we had a great dog that I was born into as the firstborn blessed son. Uh, and the dog's name was Sparky. He was half Cocker Spaniel. No, no, Springer Spaniel and half Labrador. He was placid. He was mellow. He was faithful. He was smart. He was awesome. And he lived to be like a billion in dog years. And then Sparky went on to be with the Lord because all dogs go to heaven. There's a cartoon movie about it. And uh, we got a new dog. And we wanted a dog from the movie Babe. You ever seen the movie Babe? Those black and white dogs are border collies. Don't ever get one. We got one, and we named him Hank because we read Hank the Cowdog books all the time. And what we were expecting was black and white dog. We got another black and white dog. These are just ones who chase sheep in movies. So it's going to be the same. Dog's going to be the same. He's going to be great family dog. 
and, and he grows up and he gets a little bit bigger. And this one illustration I'll just give you to show you the summary of this character of this canine. Uh, my parents are leading a small group Bible study in our house, praying, reading, fellowshipping, feeling needs, all that good stuff that you do in small groups in your living room. And then all of a sudden, the cable box, we used to have those, on top of the TV gets yanked off the top and hits the wall and shatters. And so they immediately, the room is demon-possessed. That's what we believe now. But no, it just turns out that the dog on the other side of the wall had bit the cord and yanked it with all his might and shattered the cable box. And that's just one example of many of what he did. Uh, We don't have time to go into all of what it is, but we came to find out that we had a clinically insane dog with the first documented case of canine ADHD. That's the dog that we had. Every jogger, every cyclist going down our street was just bait for him to just go chase. Not bite, but just move somewhere else. And then we realized this is what he is. How do we deal with what he is? Because he is not sparky. All we had to do was turn on the sprinklers. And he would go from sprinkler head to sprinkler head, biting them and biting the water and then go to the next one. And then you get one of those ones that spins in a circle and he would do a tight circle for about 45 minutes, biting the water. And then every cyclist and jogger could just go free. All cable boxes were off the hook. You're alive now because we understood what it is that he was and it enabled us to interact with him better and it made our lives better because we understood the nature of the beast. We're gonna do the same thing this morning with humans So look at verse 15 with me. We're going to get illuminated as to what humans are and how God has structured the existence of humanity. Look at verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Solomon begins here with a tension that we have all felt. Why does the good guy, the righteous person, die young? And why does it seem that the wicked person, by their wickedness, extends their life and they get to live long and prosper? Why does it seem to be that way? Why why is that that way? It's It's a conundrum. It's a tension. We've all felt it. Why does my friend named Caleb Morgan, who was so pure in high school, he didn't even get the dirty jokes in the locker room? They just went over his head and he didn't even care. I mean, like the most righteous teenager I've ever met. Why does he die in a car crash at 19, but Fidel Castro lives into his 90s? Why does that happen? That's where Solomon is in verse 15, trying to understand this. In the following verses, Solomon's going to say in answer of that exactly what David said before him and what Paul and Jesus will say after him. He says in Psalm 53, verse 3, this is David They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So Solomon's answer to verse 15, why do good people suffer? He will say, there are no good people. Just like his father David said, and just like Jesus says in Mark 10, 17 through 18, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he knew that this man didn't know that he was God. So he says, no one's good but God. And then Paul, after Jesus, says in Romans 3, 11 
through 12, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And you may be thinking, man, those verses are right. They are right about them, whoever them is. But no, those verses are about you. And those verses are about me. Before Christ, that is 100% my reality. That I am not good. There's not even one of us who is good. Before Christ. So those without Christ definitely fall into this category. But what about now? As a Christian, as a one striving for holiness, striving for righteousness, let me ask you this way. Is God obligated to be good to me now? Does merely receiving one gift entitle you to other gifts? Does merely receiving the gift of salvation... So can a Christian say, Jesus, you freely gave me salvation. You wiped away my sins. You declared me to be righteous in the sight of the Father, who is the righteous judge... You did all of that free of charge to me. Now you owe me a perfect, pain-free existence where I die and I don't even feel it. You owe me that because you gave me something else. Does that make sense? Is that, is that logical? Does God's graciousness towards sinners somehow obligate him to unlimited graciousness in every other possible mean? Is he obligated to those he gave something freely to? We need to reason with this. Solomon's going to reason with this because I am not righteous once I'm saved. You're not made good. God declares you to be righteous and imputes to you the righteous of Christ. He takes his righteousness and puts it on you, but you are not intrinsically righteous. So why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. The fact is there is only one good person, and he suffered unspeakable pain for all people, and his name was Jesus. So the only good person did actually suffer. So why do good people suffer is moot. There are none. Well, Solomon's going to say, he's going to start out, he's going to defend that throughout the rest of these passages. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 and 17, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? These verses are so misinterpreted that we got to spend some time to explain these. At first glance, what it seems like is we need to strike a balance between being a good guy and having a little bit of wicked fun. Like, just kind of, you don't want to be too righteous. Don't be too high and mighty and too holy roller, too Bible thumper, whatever you want to put in there for that. You got to mix in a little bit. You got to have a little bit of, little bit of fun. Is that, what, is that what it's saying? Is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? How do we make that square with Matthew 5.38 when Jesus says, You therefore be righteous, be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or when Jesus in John 8, when he talks to the woman caught in adultery, he says, go now and sin no more. He doesn't say like, yo, go and sin less. Just kind of be cool now. Like don't have like five husbands. Just keep it, keep it tight. No, he says no more. Be perfect. So how do we make this square? It doesn't square with the words of Jesus or the entire Bible because Christianity is not Taoism. 
is not Buddhism where we have yin and yang and we got to strike a balance between good and evil in our lives. You need the good and you need the evil in your own life to kind of just make yourself balanced. That's, that's pagan ideas. But people do have taken that verse out of context and distorted it. Now what this is doing in verse 16, it's hitting at the idea of self-righteousness and pretend wisdom. Proverbs 3, 7 says, be not wise in your own eyes. Because as far as I've ever known and as far as my Bible has ever instructed me, it's impossible for a person to be too righteous, for a human being to be too righteous. Charles Bridges said it like this. He was an 18th uh, 1800s pastor in England. And basically, if you wanted to get anything read that you wrote and you lived in England in the 1800s, your name had to be Charles. Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Bridges. you got to have the name Charles. So he's Charles Bridges. And he says this, We cannot love God too warmly or honor him too highly or strive to serve him too earnestly or trust him too implicitly because our duty is to love him with all of our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. It is surely absurd to warn the carnal man against excess of spirituality, the earthly-minded man against overly seeking of heavenly things. That's an absurd thing to warn them about. None of us are in the problem of being too righteous. You're too like Jesus. Dial it back. Anybody struggling with that right now? Is that your prayer request this morning before God? No. So that's clearly not what this is saying. This is talking about self-righteousness. So be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Self-righteousness, an idea, a posture of entitlement towards God that you owe me something because I've done these things for you, will destroy you, verse 16 says. Why would you destroy yourself? That Solomon is saying that we can't expect God to owe us anything because we go to Sunday school. You don't get to demand that from God. I don't get to demand a pain-free, suffering-free life because I get up on Sunday mornings and I preach. You don't get to demand a pain-free, suffering-free life because you lead a life group and you disciple people. We don't get to do that. We don't get to act. Our righteousness does not demand behavior from God. Christians are not above suffering of any kind. If the begotten son suffered in the way that he did, then we as adopted sons and daughters can't expect anything better because we have the same father. But our response to this shouldn't be, well, if I'm going to suffer anyways, I might as well just have a ton of fun. That's verse 17. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? We don't need to swing so far into wicked living, meaning like whatever I do doesn't matter, so I'll just do whatever I want. No, that's not the right response either because our God is not a God of sin or a God of wickedness. And you see that phrase, why should you die before your time? Because sin comes with real consequences. <laughs> real consequences to your actions. Why sleep around and then get an STD? Why cheat on your taxes and then get audited? Why drink uncontrolled to get behind the wheel and kill someone? So, so why do that or kill yourself? Why do that? Being wicked is stupid because it comes with real consequences up to and including death, according to verse 17. So don't do that either. But verse 18 helps us cut through the mist 
over these two verses that can be a little bit enigmatic. It's the key that kind of helps us unlock these two. So verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So this and that, the this refers to verse 17 refers to verse 16, and then that refers to verse 17. That you take hold of this wisdom of that I be righteous, but I don't demand that God act on my behalf. And the that is, I got to let go of this idea of I'm just going to run down the path of wickedness because who cares? Because the wise man, what does it say? The one who fears God comes forth, other translations say, comes out with both that you have both of these things, that I don't live a life of wickedness just because who cares, I'm going to suffer anyways. And I don't also live this life of hyperpiety, demanding that God give me good things because I've given him what I think I owe him. No, you come forth with both of those ideas. God doesn't owe you anything and you can't live in sin. The wise man, the one who fears God, comes forth with both of them. See, that's real maturity, That's real biblical maturity. This person has an accurate view of themselves and of their own sin. The one who can come forth with both because this person takes a posture of humility before God when they go through hard times. That God, you don't owe me any better than this and I'm not gonna throw up my hands and say, well, whatever, you obviously don't care, so I'm gonna do whatever I want. You don't do that. I came across a profound illustration of this uh, over the past coming weeks. There's a man who lived in England in the 1800s named George. So nobody read what he wrote. His name was not Charles. Uh, But his name was George Mueller. You might have heard of him. He lives in Bristol, England, but he's actually German. And he moved to England as a kid. His family moved there. And he, he lives from 1805 to 1898. And his legacy, the reason we read his biographies, is because he did orphan care in Bristol, England, which is just right east of London. And while he had this orphanage open, he he saw 10,000 orphans come through this orphanage. 10,000 orphans come through this orphanage. So that means, I mean, you, you catch a kid at like two or three, and you don't launch him out until he's about 16. I mean, you're taking care of kids for a long time. And to have 10,000 of them. So you got two, 3,000 at any one given moment that lived there at the time. So he takes care of them. He leads them. And for the last 68 years of his ministry, some of us aren't even going to make it to 68. For the last 68 years of his ministry, he doesn't take a salary at all. He just trusts God to bring him money that he'll have food to eat and clothes to wear. For 68 years. While he's caring for these orphans. And then the orphanage, he never once asked anybody for any money. He only prayed and said, God, this is the money that we need. And he did all of that while preaching three times a week for 68 years. Do you just feel like a wimp spiritually now? I read that and I was like, what am I even doing today? I ate today. What an idiot. What? Like, why did I do this? But he would just pray and trust God. This is, what, this, is, this is what he said about his method for fundraising. He said, the first and primary object of the work, meaning the orphanage, was and still is that God might be magnified by the fact 
that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. That's the whole reason he undertook that thing, so that everybody would know from the work that was happening, God can be trusted and God listens to prayer. That's the reason he did it. And it, it worked for 68 years just walked by that kind of faith. So if anyone deserves to live a pain-free life without any suffering, it's George Mueller. But George Mueller outlives all four of his kids and two wives. And let me read you. I brought the book itself because it was too long to, to type it up, and I'm a lousy typer. But let me read you what he, what he wrote about watching his first wife, Mary, die next to her bed. He says this, The last portion of Scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. It's Psalm 84, 11. You should write that verse down. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So then he says, now if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace, we are partakers of grace, and to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part of the verse, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner. And I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin, I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word Believing what he says. Can you believe that? He says, if it's truly a good thing, my wife will be raised back up. She'll get off that deathbed. But if it's, she doesn't get back up off that deathbed, then that was the good thing. I mean, he outlives two wives and all of his kids, even his kids that make it to an adulthood. His daughter dies when she's 57. And he lives to be 93. And so, His perspective in all of this is just to be that I can trust God. God is trustworthy. I'm going to take God at his word and what he says at his word. And he doesn't say, God, you owe me this because look what I've done. I've made you so famous with all the the financial provision you've given us and all the care that's been provided for the least of these. You owe me a family that lives. Not Not that's happy, healthy, educated and all that, but that just lives And he just says, that's going to be what's best. And that's what God does. And that's what Solomon's calling us to in this, that Mueller came out with both, verse 16 and verse 17. And in verse 19, Solomon's going to go into the proper perspective of the self. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Solomon says it's good to be wise and it's good to pursue wisdom in life because wisdom is not just the knowledge of accumulated facts. It's being guided by an inner strength that comes from a God-instructed conscience. 
or Holy Spirit. That's what wisdom is, not just being smart. So without knowing God and gaining the heavenly wisdom made available to, a, available to us a relationship with him, your sin will devour all that you are and all that you have. Without the pursuit of godliness and holiness, sin let run rampant will destroy your marriage, will destroy your children, will destroy your job, and destroy your life. So it is good to pursue wisdom and to holiness, but in our pursuit of that holiness, we never forget verse 20. Look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He refers back to 16, 17, and 18. Surely there's not a person on earth who always does good and never sins. That person doesn't exist. So you are not perfect. You have not arrived. We are to pursue holiness without the swelling head of religious pride. We pursue holiness because we're called to be like Christ, but we are not above chastening and we are not above trials because we are still sinners in a broken world. Once you become unteachable in the Christian life, once you think that I've known, I know all that I need to know, or I've learned all that I need to learn, and I've grown and all I need to grow, then your heart begins to calcify and your kingdom usefulness diminishes into nothing. So Solomon says, don't ever get to where you start drinking your own Kool-Aid and you start believing the hype about you because you know that you are a sinner. And so God can take everything away. But if you have Christ, you have no reason to complain about your earthly circumstances. Uh, I lost my job. You have Christ. I got, I got laid off. You have Christ. I got cancer. You have Christ. Everything else is gone. I, you have Christ. I got bankrupt. You have Christ. All we have is Christ. And that's all that we need to know. At the end of the day, that's all that you have that's going to have any significance. So Solomon says that you are a sinner. Yes, but Christ has saved you. So we cling to that. We take him at his word. So as those pursuing holiness, look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. So in our righteousness and in our pursuit of holiness, when people slander you, those who are walking humbly before God don't need to react emotionally. You don't need to react emotionally at all when you're slandered or wrongfully accused. Why? Because verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others because you're worse than what they're making up. If they really knew who you were, then they'd have enough to put you out of business for life. They'd have enough to kick you out of everything. So praise God, they're just making up stuff. That's, that's where we walk. That's where we live because we never lose sight of our own sinfulness. And yes, it hurts when your character is slandered, but if they knew the truth, if they knew your thought life, then you mean you'd be dead in the water right there. Spurgeon says it like this. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. And he's many he hits it on the screws. And he's like, rejoice, because you're worse than that. And they don't know. That's what Solomon says. Like, don't, don't walk down that road. You just you take it because you know you're a sinner saved by grace. When people bring up things about you, like, yeah, I, I actually am worse than that. But I've been covered by the blood of Christ. All I have is Christ. In verse 23, he continues on that Solomon 
I was going to say, all of this isn't just true about others, but it's true about himself. In verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Verse 24, that which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? He tried to figure out how the innards work in this whole deal, and he didn't, he didn't get there. He, he couldn't figure it out, and nobody else can figure it out either. We are finite mortals with limited access into the mind of God. We have 66 books, and that's overwhelming to us now as humans. Little, if we knew all of the mind of God, it would make us blow up. So in verse 25 through 29, this is the scheme of things. This is how it all plays out. Look at verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness. Song says, I'm going to try to figure out how God works and why he works the way he does. Verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, who pleases God. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Here's what he discovered. Do right be moral, walk humbly before God because you are a sinner. And the one giving themselves to unfettered sin will soon find that those sinful pleasures become his chains. That's what verse 26 is talking about. Solomon uses a side note. You see there, it talks about a woman. And so Solomon, he uses the female uh, gender to personify folly and sin here. Just like in Proverbs 1 through 9, he uses the female gender, to personify folly, lust, and also wisdom. It's a Hebrew literary uh, tactic, I guess you could say, or literary device to personify ideas or concepts as feminine. So we don't need to read in here that, oh, Solomon's a chauvinist or a misogynist. No, the guy with 700 wives doesn't have an aversion to women. He's got a lot of other problems, but that's not one of them. No, this is a literary tactic. Because you look at Ecclesiastes 9, 9, it says, enjoy life with the wife, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor before God. So this is not to be taken in that way. He's just using the literary idea of personifying concepts as female. But back to what the verse is about, that you live morally. The one who fears God escapes the chains and the snare of sin. Who gets to escape those chains? The one who pleases God. Remember that your, your morality doesn't give you immunity in life. We haven't arrived spiritually. We're still in that fight. I still could get snared. How can Paul say, we, we refer to this often. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Or some translations say the chief of sinners. And we kind of take that and go, yeah, okay, you still got some things to go. But how can he write that faithfully? knowing what he knows about himself, knowing what he knows about other people in First Timothy that he calls out, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, and says, I've given them over to Satan. He, he's, he's saying, oh, no, I'm worse, I'm worse than them. Is it just some kind of humble hypocrisy? How can he really say that? Well, he can really say that because the brighter the light gets in the room, the more you see the stains and the dirt. So he can look at his own heart the closer he gets to Christ and the brightness of Christ reveals to him the darkness of his own sin and he can say that in all honesty. That we are all one decision away from tanking your life. You are one decision away from that. From ensnaring our hearts to sin. 
So we walk by faith in Christ, not by the sight of our own good deeds. As Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes the sight can be our own good deeds. I start to believe my own hype, drink my own Kool-Aid. I start thinking I'm immune to suffering because of who I am. But we're not. We're not. In Solomon, verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. The scheme of things is a level of understanding of the inner clockwork of the things of life. The, and this is the, the findings of a search is what he's looking for. In verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. So has he found anyone good, man or woman? Well, he uses a Hebrew idiom here when he says not like one man in a thousand, not one woman in a thousand. That's like us saying like one in a million, like an impossible chance. No, they don't exist. I haven't found anybody who's actually good. In all of my searching, in all of my looking, I haven't found anybody else who fits that. So no matter how good, pure, or righteous we presume ourselves to be, were we to be held up into the presence of God on our own, we would disintegrate. We would disintegrate, disintegrate. You would come apart if you were held before a righteous God because God requires equivalent righteousness to his own for anybody who's going to be in heaven. That's the level of righteousness that he requires. So you don't have to be as good as anybody else because he's not comparing you to anybody else. He's comparing you to Christ. And if you are not as good as God, you don't get in. That's the level of righteousness that we must attain to. So of course Solomon could say, I didn't find anybody. I didn't find anybody at all. And he's going to conclude this section with the orthodox position on human depravity. Verse 29, see, this alone I found that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. See that trail in verse 25, the scheme of things. Verse 27, the scheme of things. Verse 29, many schemes. We follow that trail, we get to this end, that in the Garden of Eden, verse 29 says, God did make man good. In fact, Genesis 1.31 says man was made very good. He saw and it was very good. God made men upright, but what happened? Genesis 3, verse 7 happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some, of her, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Mankind sought out another way. Or verse 29, mankind has sought out many schemes. Adam and Eve, the representatives of humanity, decided to stop looking to God for true goodness, to stop delighting at the sight of God, and they desired that the wisdom that they could get from this tree was better than the wisdom that God was giving them a little at a time. So they sought out other schemes. Adam sought out many schemes, and his sin has been imputed to us. Man will replace God with anything. Man has always been replacing God with anything. Romans 1, 19, 21, 23 says it so plainly. For that which can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've always done this. Let's replace God with something else. 
that God made men upright, but I'm going to seek out some other way. I'm going to find another scheme to make it all work. But we've, we've been doing since the garden. Anything else but the creator to explain existence to us is acceptable. Anything else but him. And any idea or invention that is not the God of the Bible is a worthwhile pursuit to the unconverted heart. Because he sought out many schemes. And Solomon says, you see that in verse, the, the first phrase of verse 29? See, this alone I found. Solomon's grabbing our attention. This alone that I found. All the other discoveries in this section and other sections, he's trying to say that they are subservient to this one. They're absorbed into this one. That God made man and man unmade himself. God made man and man unmade himself. And in the garden, man became the author of his own ruin. Because God made man upright, but he sought out many schemes. So this brings us back to our beginning. Why do good people suffer? They don't. We are not good. No one is good before Christ, and you're just declared to be good and have his goodness imputed to us after Christ. But we are not intrinsically good. So surely God does indeed bless us in this life. We can say amen to that up and down. All you have to do is walk outside. See, we're building, we're tearing down a building that existed to build a nicer one. And when you hear of churches in Africa that are called Church of the Mango Tree because they just meet under a mango tree, you realize, yeah, we're, we're, we've been blessed. We've been very blessed. We thank God for that. We praise God for that. We, we seek to be effective stewards of what he's given us. But in God's mercy, he allows us to endure suffering to remind us that this is not our home. That that is mercy from God to endure suffering. To just remind you, this is not all there is. This is not what we're waiting for. Because we're so shallow and we're so easily distracted that if I have a good life and things are going pretty good, my job's going well, my kids are healthy, things are, I, like the Red Sox are winning, I can go, okay, things are pretty good. This is a great life. And I'll get so distracted because I'm so shallow. But God in his mercy interjects a little bit of suffering in there, a little bit of pain, so you go, you know what? This is not that great of a place. I'm looking forward to something else. So suffering is merciful that we get to see that we're not meant for here because the fact of the matter is that only one good person has ever suffered, and his name was Jesus of Nazareth. And that Jesus stands in advocacy between you and the Father, between believers and the Father, praying for us, interceding for us, and his continual righteousness before the Father covers us every single day. And for those who don't know Christ, this Jesus from Nazareth stands at the ready to impute his righteousness to you should you repent of your sin, reject all that you've held on to, and in faith, receive that as a free gift. And if you have not done that, I plead with you to do that today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for showing us how bad we are and that our worthlessness did not change your mind, that our sinfulness did not negate your graciousness to us but yet you extended a grace to us anyways. And we are thankful and we praise you for that.
Thank you for not letting our seeking out many schemes deter you from chasing us down and finishing the, the act of redemption at the cross. Father, and as we celebrate that act right now with communion, give us hearts to really resonate and meditate upon those truths. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray.